Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. I'd like to ask you to stand with me this morning as we turn to Matthew 24. And we're going to read in Matthew 24 the... um, the whole of the passage that we have been looking at where Jesus is speaking. His disciples have come to him on the Mount of Olives. They're with him in private. They ask him, when will these things happen? What will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? Assuming that they are simultaneous events, that they take place at the same time. Jesus corrects them and answers about the, the times that lie ahead in the passage that we are, we are reading together now. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance, therefore if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. 
And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Will you raise your arms with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask for your word to have power. We ask that you'll speak by your Holy Spirit to all of our hearts through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have just read a passage that is full of foreboding and at least potentially fearful events. A passage that can give our young uh, uh, cause to fear when they read it, when they hear it. A passage that may cause you fear when you read it. Words of warning about wars and famines and earthquakes of people killing the followers of Christ, of a, a desolate nature of life, a, an embrace of barrenness and sterility that is an abomination resting in the heart of God's people, in the hearts of God's people. Of a need to flee in a tribulation that is going to fall upon the earth that is worse than any that has ever been or ever will be. A time so evil that unless the days have been cut short, not one life would have survived of false Christ coming and doing great signs and wonders, miracles, powerful things, things that you think could only be done by someone with the power of God. And there being false Christ claiming to be Christ and confusing and deceiving many. And then the sun is darkened, the moon doesn't give its light and the stars fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens are shaken. And at that point, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And so at the end, we come to something that is tangibly hopeful. But the preceding verses are full of foreboding. We have in this passage certain commands, certain warnings. But it's important that we recognize to whom this passage is addressed. This passage is, is addressed in two ways to one specific set of people. First, the actual physical setting of this passage is clear. It is Jesus and his disciples sitting together apart from anyone else on the top of the Mount of Olives, they have asked him a question. He is privately revealing the future to them, correcting their understanding in some ways, revealing more than they had sought in other ways. He's speaking to them, all 12 of them, on top of Mount, the Mount of Olives. This is Jesus speaking to his apostles, those who were sent by him, his chosen 12. The 12 
that he had elected, that he had chosen, that he had said, I want you and you, out of all the men on earth, out of all the men in Judea, you and 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 you. These are his 12. They are the elect, chosen by Jesus, called out from everyone else. Even Judah elect, chosen by Christ, not in ignorance, not because he didn't know what this man was going to do. The Bible's clear, Jesus knew. It says, it must happen, but woe to that man through whom it happens. Jesus knew the one who would betray him, it says, from the beginning. And so even Judas was elect to a role that he fulfilled. All 12 are elect. All 12 are chosen by God. All 12 receive their marching orders and their lives from the divine. And then as Jesus speaks to these 12, the second way that this theme comes out is not just the physical circumstances, but the obvious group that Jesus is addressing in this, in this discourse, this speech he gives to his 12, to his elect 12. And that group he's addressing are his elect. Three times in here he says, uh, for the sake of the elect, if possible, even the elect will gather together his elect. He's speaking to those who are chosen by him and not chosen for evil, but for good. Chosen to follow him, chosen to follow him to eternal life. Those who are the ones who belong to him. And so we have in this passage a display of God's concern for his elect. Those he's chosen out of the world. And it's a revelation of the reality of election. It shows us certain great things about election. We'll come to those. But before we go to those towards the end of our time together, I want us to just speak to you about the reality of the election. That God chooses men and women and makes them his own. And that he does so freely, not on the basis of their prior choice of him, but as a sovereign king chooses, God chooses. He says, you and you and you, and is doing it not on the basis of what he sees, but on the basis of what he will do. Not that these are the right and good and righteous people, but because he wants them. And he is going to reveal his glory rather than their glory through electing them. And so very often God chooses the worst of sinners. God, to prove his power and his glory, chooses a man like Apostle Paul who hates him and is flying in his face with his hatred of Christ and who is working to kill the followers of God. And God says, you, that's election. Now, there are a number of doctrines in the Bible that are vital, but I don't think there are any two that are more important to your life and mine and more central to the Word of God than two really hated doctrines. One is the doctrine of Christ's atoning blood, and the other is the doctrine of election. The idea that God 
has anger at sin, that God is so holy that he must punish sin and that he will punish sin with his wrath via hell for an eternity is offensive to people. The idea that they must come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ rather than in their own standing is offensive to people and the world hates it and it's despised this idea that I must go to God because I'm a sinner and I'm in need and I have nothing except the blood of Jesus to cover me and wash me and make me righteous in his sight. It's hated. It's despised. You, you just run into people who will theoretically admit their sin. Most Americans will. But no one, <laughs> no one who theoretically admits, yeah, potentially I'm a sinner, is willing to actually unless God works to elect that person, is willing to actually say yes, and I need the atoning blood of Jesus. They hate it. It takes election. It takes God's work to bring us from that point of a theoretical acknowledgement of, well, I'm not perfect, to the point where we say, I'm a damned sinner. I'm going to hell, except God comes and chooses me and gives me life in his son. And that's a hated one, but it's hated not by its beneficiaries, those who who receive the blood of Jesus, those for whom Jesus atoned, those, those people don't hate this doctrine. This doctrine is hated by those, who, by those who do not benefit from it, by those who are among those who are damned, who reject Jesus and his blood, who, who say, I don't need this done in my life. And those are the ones who hate it. That's the first doctrine. The second doctrine that's vital, just so vital, I think you really can't be a Christian, just like the atonement, without embracing this doctrine, is election. The irony is the election, the idea that I have been chosen by God, is not a problem with those who are rejecting God and say, I want nothing to do with you. And they don't mind the, the doctrine of election. They don't want to be elect. They don't want that happening in their lives. And so the enemies of the doctrine of election are found time after time in the church, not outside, among those who should be the grateful ones, but are not, among those who claim Jesus but want to say it's on my works, it's on my knowledge, it's on my goodness that I get this benefit rather than it's entirely due to God's mercy and grace. And so this doctrine of election is fundamental to our lives but you and I are the ones who are most likely to turn against it and to hold, even if we don't in our words reject it, in our hearts reject it, by thinking that we've somehow been worthy and forced God's hand. There is a philosophical, a philosophical theory known as determinism, and it's big. And the idea of determinism is that your whole life is written out before you come to being. Your life is determined, your choices are determined. It's, and it's not a Christian philosophy, it's, it's a secular philosophy, determinism. And it's a big philosophy, lots of advocates of it. The world doesn't have any problem with election. 
The world understands that our choices are framed by so many things that to say I am captain of my soul, master of my destiny is is foolish. It's the Christian who struggles here. The one who thinks he has Christ and thinks he's chosen Christ. So I want to speak to you about the reality of election. And it's written in the Bibles every page. You have the people of Israel who are chosen by God because he chose their father, Abraham. He did not choose them, God tells the Israelites, because they were a mighty and powerful nation. But because they were small and weak. And because he in his glory, wanted to take that which was nothing and make it something so that the power would be his rather than ascribe to the might of the nation and the people. It begins with Noah, with Abraham, and it rides through the rest of the pages of Scripture. It just rides and rides this doctrine of election. And it comes to full flower in Jesus Christ's who speaks and says to his disciples in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Jesus says, you belong to me, you didn't choose me, but I chose you so that you would go and bear fruit. And I don't think there are many truths in scriptures that can be more baldly stated that are more baldly stated or more clearly capable of being understood this truth you did not choose me but I chose you it stands right up there with in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth not much room for misunderstanding not much room for confusion or for argument you did not choose me but I chose you It's stated in one short, clear, easily understood sentence, positively and negatively. It's not just stated positively, it's also stated negatively. You did not choose me. You did not choose God, but I chose you. You can't argue with it. There's no room in those few clauses, those two clauses, for dispute. You can only deny it. You can't dispute it. The clarity of the statement leaves no room for interpretation. There is no clearer declarative statement in Scripture. It's right up there with the most obvious and clear statements in all of Scripture. Now, as a human being, I could never make a statement like this to any other willing partner in any area of life. You could imagine a police officer who has just arrested a suspect saying something like this to the suspect as they are in handcuffs. You did not choose me, but I grabbed you. But imagine saying to someone you value, someone you work together with, someone that you love. Imagine me, for instance, saying to Cheryl, Cheryl, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. 
I could readily say, Cheryl, I chose you, and it would be true. And it is true that in matters of love, often one party chooses first and the other party eventually responds to that choice by the first party. In fact, in our history as a church, there have been a number of times when we've seen this happen where someone falls for someone and the other one is not yet besmitten, you know. And, and so <laughs> that one just keeps on going after him, going after If it's a guy or the girl just waits patiently and eventually comes around and it becomes mutual. And so it can be obvious to every onlooker that one partner chose first, but the other one did choose in response to the initial choice by the one, and it's required for it to be a true marriage that they both chose, that they both willingly said yes. We would never allow a marriage as a church or as Christians where there were not two free choices made in the, in the coming together of the bride and the groom. This fact is so basic that it's enshrined in the very wording of the marriage ceremony. We're at the very beginning of the service in the part that's called the declaration of consent. We ask first the man, so-and-so, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep you only unto her so long as you both shall live? And the answer to that is, I will. Now, some years ago, I had a young bride who was very intent on planning her perfect wedding come to me and say, okay, you, you showed me that ceremony, but I don't like that first part. It's just a repetition of what comes later. I mean, the, uh, let's just cut this declaration of consent garbage. And I, <laughs> and I, I had to say to her, no, that part is, is fundamental. What it represents is that these two have come here willingly, not forced. And unless the marriage is conducted with both parties consenting to it, it's not a marriage. And so we begin the wedding by saying, I will, which means it is my will, I want to do it. And then when we come to the vows later that sound very similar, we say, I do. Because now, having stated that I am here of my own free will, we go on and, and we ask them to do it and they say, I do. But Jesus not only states that he chooses, what he does in John is to deny his disciples their agency to choose in the same matter. He says, you did not choose, but I chose you. In our passage this morning, Jesus calls his disciples the elect three times. And this is what we mean when we speak of election. God choosing to do something in us. God choosing us, God initiating without our correspondingly choosing ourselves at that time. His choice governing. We not choosing him, but him choosing us. Marriage requires two corresponding choices. They can differ in time, but both must be made prior to marriage for the marriage to be a true marriage. It is kidnapping, it is bride-stealing and theft if the man chooses and the woman does not, but he takes her. This past summer, Nate preached on the book of Judges when, because of evil done by the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin is attacked by the other tribes and reduced to a few hundred men. 
Because the other tribes had vowed not to give wives to the men of Benjamin, there were no women in Israel to give to marry the remaining men of the tribe. The other tribes were concerned about the wiping out of a tribe and they thought, how can we solve this? How can we find tribes for Benjamin? So they go and they check out who's there, who went to battle, who took the vow not to give their daughters to Benjamin. And they found the residents of the town of Shiloh had not, had not made this commitment, had not been represented in the battle, and had not taken the vow. And so the 11 tribes said to the men of Benjamin, hey, Shiloh has a yearly festival. The women of the town, the young women, go out and they dance in the fields. You hide there. And when these young women are out dancing in the fields at that annual festival, each of you grab one and take her home as your wife. Now, those were not true wives. They were grabbed, they were stolen, it was against their wills. And it's representative of the evil of that period that such a thing would be allowed to happen, even suggested to happen, told to happen in Israel. Nevertheless, those, those unions that began in infamy Many of them probably became true marriages as the women grew to love the men who captured them and eventually did consent to, to these men being their husbands. Their captors came to be their husbands by their choice. This, however, is not the kind of process Jesus is referring to when he says, I have chosen you and you did not choose me. Jesus does not say, I chose you first and you, after you saw how good it was to be with me and tasted my goodness, you also chose me and therefore now we're married. He says, I chose you, but you did not chose me. Inevitably, those who Jesus chooses do come to know him and to love him and to be grateful for his choice. But his choice affects his union with them, not their corresponding and later choice of him. You did not choose me, but I chose you. All the subsequent growth in our love for him, all the gratitude that we come to have for him, all the obedience that becomes part of our life to his word flows not from our choice but from his choice and yet this growth in love for him this growth in valuing him this growth in obedience to him unlike marriage does not make his action valid his choice his election of his own is valid because he is God. He created you. He disposes of you as he wants. His choice of you and me is necessary because unless we are chosen by him, we will never love him. We will never love him, but we will hate him and we will reject him and we will despise his blood and his death, and we will think ourselves not in need of his salvation unless he elects us, unless he gathers us up and says, you're mine. 
We are so bound by sin and obstinate in our rejection of Christ that only his choice of us can free us up to obey him and love him. So this is a, a hated doctrine in scripture, disliked by those who claim to be its beneficiaries. Hell and the wrath of God and our need of Christ's blood to be saved are hated by those outside Christ, those who are not beneficiaries of that doctrine. Hell and wrath are not hated by those who are saved, but by those who reject Jesus, those who are, who are under the wrath of God. But the vast majority of those who despise the idea of election are people who claim to belong to God. They are in churches this morning. They are claiming the name of Christ. They're saying, I'm a Christian. But they're saying, I'm a Christian because I chose him. And the inherent weakness and falsity of that position is evident in the character of their lives. Yet for those who truly know God, this doctrine of election that he chose us and we did not choose him is the great joy, the, the tremendous power and the glory of our salvation. Now deny it and you are in a most dangerous position. If you are claiming to be a child of God and you say, I don't like the idea of election, you are in grave danger. You have either knowingly said, I've chosen you, God. I've made this choice. I've had the wisdom to do it. I have the goodness of heart to like your son. Choosing God, you think, by your own power on your own terms, out of your own wisdom and goodness. Which means that you do not have new life in Christ. Which means if you claim this and actually believe it, that you have not been born again. Because what baby controls his birth? What baby has the unmitigated gall to say to his mother, yeah, I, I chose you, mom. I chose you, dad. And so if you believe this, you have not been born again. Because anyone who's born again understands that God comes in and changes us. And it's a sovereign act by God. It's not our choice. Or it may be that you pay lip service to the doctrine of election. And you say, oh yes, God is elect. But you're kind of proud that you know about election. You're kind of proud that you're a Calvinist and reformed. You're kind of proud about these things. And deep in your heart, you really don't think God did it, but you think God is established because you are so wise, you understand him. And that's equally pernicious and dangerous. There are many here who would never say, I chose God, but who in their hearts think, yeah, I'm pretty good. Yeah. I made the right choice. Yeah, I understand these things and think that because they're so smart and righteous and good 
that they can understand that God is sovereign, God is elect, I'm chosen by God. Isn't it nice? It's like the beauty queen or the, the homecoming queen at the high school who understands that she was chosen by vote by others, but really says, it's my beauty. Yeah, I know they voted for me. Aren't I something? And many of you think, yeah, God, you chose me. And aren't I something? I'm really pretty good. And let anyone challenge you about your goodness or your walk with God and you are up in arms and you are angry. Let anyone tell you that you are not as good as you think you are and you go, yes, I am. You really are convinced. You're the cat's meow. And you're going through life as the cat's meow. And part of being the cat's meow is being sort of Uriah Heepish, the Dickens character, went around saying, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. But all the time he's commending himself on his nothingness. I'm nothing. Oh, I'm nothing. All the glory to God, I'm nothing. <laughs> the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And many of us who say it's election are actually saying in our hearts, it's me, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the one who understands. Look at how I know things. Look at how I act. I'm the one. And so, unless you can say as the Bible tells us, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Do you rebel against that? Do you say, I'm not foolish. I'm not, I'm not a fool. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. But you think you're strong, don't you? You really do. I'm including myself. Look at me. Look at you. You're really something. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. Base and despised. He's chosen the base, the nothings. The, the pots that are used in the kitchen that really aren't used in the kitchen but are ceramic and are used as chamber pots. That's what you are. Base and despised not wise not strong base despised God has chosen these the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God and what the verse says is that God has chosen you and me who are nothing wicked sinners base despised weak and foolish so that he may shame the wise, the strong, the powerful, the elevated and elegant. That's precisely why God has chosen you, if he's chosen you, because you're nothing, just like Israel. You're nothing, and he wants to show his glory by taking a sinner who's desperately sinful and knows that he is a sinner and making that person his son. So in our passage this morning, 
three things gloriously told about election. First, we read here, and unless, this is verse 22, and unless those days, these days of turmoil and tribulation had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The awfulness of those days that are unprecedented either prior to or unprecedented in, in t- time ahead as well. The awfulness of those days will be cut short. God is going to step in and intervene to shorten how long those days would otherwise have endured. They will be cut short for the, one specific reason, for the sake of the elect. God will not allow his elect to be wiped out. And so the whole world benefits by God shortening these days because the elect are in the midst of the earth. This is, this is what it means to be elect. God looks out and he says, I've chosen them. Oh, they could be wiped out and they are mine and I will not allow it. And the whole world is preserved because the elect are in her midst. Think about this. You are the salt and light of the world. If it weren't that you were here and elect and serving as preservation and as illumination to the world, God would say, end, end. You are the salt, the light. God is watching and caring for his own. Even when it seems that all is lost in the midst of darkness. In the lion's den, God is father to his elect. In the fiery furnace, God is there with his children. These evil days that lie ahead are cut short for all mankind for the sake of the elect. The elect of God are the salvation of the world. It's always this way. When the elect are in the midst of a people, God is more generous and more more merciful. Lot was in the midst of Sodom. Sodom was evil and wicked, but when Sodom was overcome by the the kings that came and captured the city, Abraham came by God's leadership and rescued all of Sodom because there was one righteous man in there, Lot. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. There will be great signs, there will be great teachers and prophets, they will accompany their their words with great deeds, and it's so magnificent and so overpoweringly powerful that it would, Jesus says, if possible, deceive even the elect, but it's impossible for the elect to be deceived. It is impossible for you who belong to God and have been chosen by God, it is impossible for you to fall away. It will not happen. If it were possible, these false messiahs, these powerful prophets would deceive you. But you will not be deceived because you belong to God. So why then does Jesus warn through Matthew for us not to be deceived by false teachers? Why does he say that earlier in this chapter if we can't be deceived? Because Christ does not put election on you as a stamp so that you know it and the whole world knows it. He works it through his spirit in your heart. 
And the Bible says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Peter writes, that was Paul. Peter writes, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. He says, you don't know God's plans. You don't know. Judas didn't know when he was called by God what his purpose was. He thought he was going to be a great minister of the truth of Christ. God says to you, be aware. You must follow me. You work out your election. You make it sure by your obedience. Third thing that this passage promises is that God will vindicate his elect. How? And he, at the end, will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. One day, the elect of God will have a sign on them. They will be seen by all the world. They will stand out in glory in the midst of those. They'll be gathered to the side of Christ for all to see, including Satan and his demons and all of mankind that has rejected Christ, and they will stand by the side of Christ, standing with him in glory, chosen by him, invisible to all. So, I tell you, friends, election is life. And if you don't like the idea of God choosing, then you have not been chosen. It's that simple. You have not tasted what it is for God to come into your life and give you new life. If you reject this doctrine, what you're saying is, I did it. I corresponded with it. I made it happen along with God. That's not possible biblically. And so you're a rebel against God. But for those of us who knew our sin and knew our hopelessness and knew how powerfully glorious it was when God came to us and made his election clear by giving us the new birth and his Holy Spirit entering us and us defeating sin and us obeying him. This is the most beautiful of doctrines. And if you reject the teaching of Christ on election, you, you are denying the word of God and you're a fool. You're cutting off the power of God and choosing instead your own power. And that is the bargain a fool makes to exchange the power of God, the choice of God, and the sovereignty of God for the power and the choice and the controlling authority of yourself. If you were to hang over the edge, the precipice of Niagara Falls, would you rather that the power that held you there was your own? The strength of your arms, the power of your fingers, or would you rather have it be the power of God that held you there, that kept you from falling? It's shameful to hate election. Finally, for those this morning who don't know what it is to be born again, who if there is such a thing as election in their minds, they may be thinking, you may be thinking, well, there may be, but if it's real, what do I do? How do I get there? I want you to imagine that there's a door up here at the front of this platform. 
And this door is the door behind which stands the love of God, the throne room of God, the power of God, the family of God, all the glories of God. And everyone in this room has been given a key. You came in this morning, you heard the word of God, and that's a key. We are saved by the word of God. You've been given a key. You don't know if your key will fit that door. Am I elect? Is this for me? But the one thing that is absolutely certain about all those who are not elect is that they will not try the key in the door. And if you don't take your key that you've been given of the word of God, that God loves you, that God has prepared a future for you, and that God wants you to apply his word to your life, and you don't go up to that door with this and turn that key in the lock to see if it opens to you, you'll never know the power of election. But God has given you this key. And he has invited you to put it to use and to see what he will do in your life. Take the key. Take the key and put it in the lock. Apply the word of God to your life. Put the word of God, the key to heaven, in your fingers and say, I will use it. I will apply it. I trust that God has something for me and I will go and I will be among the elect. He's given you the key. That key is the calling to his election. That key is the power of his word. Try the key. Find out. You will find out if you put that key in that lock and you obey the word and you repent of your sins, you'll find out that you are elect. You will. Let us pray.